This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 1st, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will cease being the Republican Party leader in the Senate. Cato's John Samples, a fellow Kentuckian, discusses McConnell's massive role in reshaping the landscape of political speech and later the U.S. Supreme Court. John, this is an interesting moment, and I'm, I'm glad to get to sit and talk with you about it. We are both Kentuckians, and we're sort of here recording this just a couple of days after Mitch McConnell, longtime Republican leader in the U.S. Senate, has announced that he's not going to be the Republican leader in the Senate. He'll he'll maintain his seat, but uh, will not be the Republican leader anymore. You grew up in Kentucky at a different time than I did. Can you describe Mitch McConnell, his profile as a up-and-comer in Kentucky politics? There's actually a biography well before he left uh, his position by a man named John David Dyke. And he describes the early history of Mitch McConnell. And Kentucky was an overwhelmingly democratic state that I grew up in, at least. Uh, So this would be the 60s and 70s and had been for a century. McConnell came up in Louisville, the major city, in another tradition, which was republicanism. And indeed, in the tradition of a, a famous Kentucky named John Sherman Cooper and a U.S. senator named Marlo Cook, they were thought of in those days as moderate Republicans. So Senator McConnell started out in the moderate wing of the Republican Party in the 1970s. And indeed, his probably his election was he was elected in the Reagan landslide of 84. But, you know, he would still have come out of that tradition. And I think his, in a sense, his development in two ways from the beginning and through to the end has followed the development of the Republican Party in in the sense that he himself became uh, much more conservative and represented conservative positions. But here in the end, I think part of the reason for him departing is that the party has gone off in another direction in which the kind of Reagan conservatism you saw in someone like Romney at the end is no longer where the party is. It's no longer where the primary voters are. And he has uh, both lived with that and now it seems the moment uh, in history, in a sense, in which he moves on. He's also had some recent sort of health concerns that might have hastened his departure mm-hmm. somewhat. But you said he, he rose to the U.S. Senate in 1985 on the wave of a Republicanism where Ronald Reagan was incredibly popular mm-hmm. and as you mentioned, became somewhat more conservative, left that sort of -of middle-of-the-road Republican view, which now, as you say, the party has largely abandoned. Mm -hmm. What was notable about his early career in the U.S. Senate? This has been said about him, and, you know, sometimes it's said by people that don't like him and maybe rarely said by people who admire it, unless you're a, a politics insider, which is, I think the thing about his career is twofold. One, in which his ability to focus on developing a career and moving into leadership and becoming the longest-serving Republican leader was clear kind of focus that he had throughout his career. That's one thing. And the other thing is the way he did it, which is by focusing on the technical details, both of the rules uh, of the Senate, and as we, of course, know, he became a expert, and either inside or outside the Senate, an expert on campaign finance law, 
related First Amendment issues and so on. So he built his career by being uh, not some particular issue or, or even, and also interestingly, not a Kentucky issue, but rather an issue that was important to the party in which he uh, was able to, you know, rise to the top on the basis of that. All leaders, uh, partisan leaders in Congress, know a fair amount about campaign finance. They have to. A lot of the members don't, and they're in charge with raising money, among other things. But McConnell really made it his issue. And it, it was an issue, as we know here at Cato, that doesn't get you any plaudits. The, the way the framing of the issue for so long was, you were borderline evil to think anything but more and more regulation was the right idea. In pursuing his career, he did it in a sort of a, a way that went counter to, well, say, central D.C. opinion on these issues. So the positions he ended up taking were ones that were no one would take. You know, he himself uh, early on or in the middle of his career supported bans on PAC spending, which at that time was dominated by the Democratic Party, so there was a clear partisan interest. And I think everybody at that time thought that campaign finance was 90% partisan interest one way or the other. But he later changed those positions in some measure, and that may be the most remarkable story, I think, of his career. Now, you wrote a book called The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, and Mitch McConnell figures fairly prominently in the changes to how elections get funded, what speech is allowed and by whom, and who can fund what speech in the campaign context. So if you don't mind, just detail what his role was in where we are now, which I think culminated in the Bonta decision recently relating to nonprofits and their ability to keep their donors private. There are two people that are, uh, I think, are exceedingly important in the history of campaign finance from, say, 1995 to now, and whether, how to extent it can be regulated. The most important is Senator McConnell, because he was in a leadership role for a long time, and he was um, marked by the idea of this line, we shall not cross. And as I mentioned, you know, the, the kind of general atmosphere is that you know, making compromises made people think you uh, were a little bit more acceptable compromises on campaign finance regulation. But he really, as time went on, refused to do that. And more so than that, he made the arguments very directly and strong and very strict arguments against campaign finance regulation as a threat to First Amendment rights. The other person that he, I don't know if you can say follow, but he certainly paralleled the arguments that Bradley Smith was making in the academic legal literature and that ultimately culminated in the Citizens United decision that had the effect of, as a practical matter, greatly reducing the importance of, say, contribution limits to funding of uh, political campaigns. He uh, also served and uh, brought suit against the McCain-Feingold Act, which was uh, passed uh, despite his efforts in the early aughts. He lost that case, and that seemed to be the moment in which he had actually lost the fight. I remember that December. It was a, a striking moment. However, his efforts uh, also in the Supreme Court in many ways over the period and the changing mores of both that brought by McConnell and Smith were that, you know, if you were going to be and wanted to be a 
Supreme Court justice and wanted to be appointed by a Republican. You know, campaign finance regulations and our First Amendment concerns about it, that was really something you were going to share. Whoever was seriously considered was going to be pretty tough on that kind of stuff. And I think that in that sense, he both, uh, in a sense, lost at a particular time to a particular court on McCain-Feingold, but he also uh, ultimately won the battle in Citizens United, and the battle that he won was pretty thoroughgoing, right? And the other thing that happens, though, beyond the legal part, is that he was willing to do things, ultimately, that favored restricting uh, regulations on uh, campaign finance, even if it was in the Republican Party's advantage. And then one example of that that I recall, and it happened and I was struck by it because, as you know, our listeners may know, people that are in Congress generally do the thing that is politically astute pretty much. Uh, They're really concerned about re-election and so on. And in 2006, Republicans, because of the Iraq War, because of mostly because of the Iraq War, some other things were in a really bad and would ultimately lose the House in that election. It was a bad election. And they knew it was coming in early 2006. So the re- Democrats had been using this kind of Section 527 groups, which is a section of the tax code. And they'd been using it to raise and spend money in ways that, you know, were a real threat to Republican candidates in 2006. And so, what do you know, the people who had been in favor of the First Amendment came up with a bill to bad 527 <laughs> groups. I mean, it was really that overt. And it was even things like people saying in the Republicans saying in the paper, well, this is something we can do for our candidates. These were party operatives. And McConnell stopped that, right? It's not clear that that was a politically rational thing to do in 2006. So he had a sense that the the First Amendment stuff, he had adopted it, whether, I don't know, maybe he had it all along, whatever. But this was optional and very striking to me that a party leader would do something like that. I would like to think of others that might do that, forego party advantage for something larger, but it doesn't come up that much, actually. Now, strongly related to that, is the fact that Mitch McConnell was one of few Republicans who would defend, as a constitutional matter, the act of burning an American flag. And for for people who take expression, political speech and expression seriously, that seems like a consistent position to hold. That is, I'm in favor of you funding ideas and speech that you like, and the act of delivering those funds to those speakers is an act of First Amendment expression. Likewise, burning an American flag, while there's no financial act there, there is sort of a a tangible act that is not itself speech, but seems very clear, at least to Mitch McConnell and others, that this is expression, and this is a protected act to the extent that it sends a message. You have to keep in mind also here the uh, situation in Kentucky, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but our listeners may not spend time in Kentucky politics. Kentucky is uh, now probably the strongest Trump state in the country. It's it's become—it may have always been very conservative politically, but it's very conservative. And burning the American flag for many people in Kentucky is not considered a small thing. On the other hand, Senator McConnell, while he stayed in office and has been in leadership for a long time, 
you always had the sense that he might lose, right? That he did end up winning handily most of his elections, very good campaigner and so on, but he might lose it. So I think it was tough and took a while for him to get to the idea of being comfortable with the uh, flag burning. It is another interesting element to this, which is, of course, the flag burning decision comes down in the early 80s. John Paul Stevens is the dissenter there. And you, you can sense in Stevens' dissents a very strong sense of offense having been taken that people were doing this. And of course, the great dissenter in Citizens, or great or not so great, dissenter in Citizens United is the very same John Paul Stevens. This was a, a different set of issues, of course. But in a sense, I think both he and McConnell were on different sides of those issues, and it was McConnell that was on the classically liberal side in both cases. The Citizens United decision, and, you know, Mitch McConnell played a pretty significant role in that, gave us this notion that just because you own a corporation, that you do not then lose your First Amendment rights to use your property or your corporate treasury funds for the purpose of political statements. Yes. As it turned out, the rights for corporations, as was pointed out at that time, were well over a century old, that they had rights beyond constitutional rights. And indeed, it makes sense if you want a kind of political system that takes everything into consideration. But it's very highly controversial. And in fact, because of that, corporations haven't made much use of that right, right? It, you can see why so every, things that have happened to, say, Disney lately give you an indication of why they might not, although that wasn't even involving campaign finance. What mattered about that decision was the beginning of where you could have uh, groups composed by individuals who were independent of the parties, independent of candidates, outside the system, were no longer covered by limitations on fundraising. So you have the so-called super PACs that emerged out of this, but what were really independent organizations because they didn't fit the corruption rationale that, after all, fundraising and campaign finance, that there is some kind of First Amendment implication for campaign finance. And with what came out of Citizens United was that that corruption rationale, the sole constitutional reason you could regulate campaign finance, really didn't apply to these people. And so the effect was you had ways of acting in the system that didn't wasn't covered by uh, fundraising controls, and people made use of that. Now, that it's followed also into some measure. That meant that after Citizens United, that uh, disclosure, those kinds of tools were the primary ways for trying to regulate campaign finance. And that, too, uh, has been an issue, uh, as, you, as you mentioned. However, there's certainly been nothing like getting rid of disclosure or making it unconstitutional. But we live in a totally different world in campaign finance we have for about 10 years there's a couple of things that are interesting about him. One is, I would say, that Mitch McConnell is the single most important reason why we live in that different world. And the second one, I think, is that the party had great fears about deregulation of campaign finance. The Democratic Party has thrived during those years. They have turned out, uh, and with technological changes on the internet, they have turned out to be extremely good at fundraising. They feared that vast corporate treasuries or wealthy individuals 
would give the Republicans such an overwhelming fundraising advantage that Democrats would just be in the permanent minority. But of course, nothing like that has happened. And the other thing that has not happened is during that period, you don't see the Democrats going to the right to maintain their fundraising. To the contrary, you see the Democratic Party of 2024 is well to the left of the party of 2000, the last 24 years. So they've adapted to an open system, in a sense, more ideologically pure, one would say, uh, or at least in some measure. And to the point that I think now, actually, it would be very hard to regulate campaign finance because the Democrats don't have those fears as deeply as they once did. And in fact, the system worked out where they had some advantages. Let me add one other element here, and this is probably a point of consternation to candidates in the U.S. more broadly. Since Citizens United, we have seen the legalization of so-called super PACs, which are essentially private individuals or groups that want to get together and spend a bunch of money just advocating on behalf of this or that related to an active political campaign. And so candidates <laughs> who had been accustomed to having money flow to their control now have to deal with an environment in which just groups of private individuals pool some money, spend it to either needle a candidate to push them in a direction that they would like that candidate to go. And I can imagine that that might put some pressure on getting rid of caps on campaign contributions on both the left and the right. It is, broadly speaking, a much more freewheeling speech environment when it comes to politics than it was 10 or 20 years ago. And candidates don't necessarily like that. That's correct, because you can have these outsider groups. They now have the ability. It's much easier to do that, as you say. It's also true that for some people who want to give beyond the old contribution limits, essentially the old contribution limits are no longer viable. That system is gone. And, you know, it really was the case, I think. It's hard to argue that the point of that system was not to restrain political activity. It seems pretty clear from the, to me, the evidence from the late 60s and early 70s is that you had a system that was having lots of problems, kind of like our system now. And one way to deal with that, Congress tried to, I mean, they, they, they were declared unconstitutional, but they enacted spending limits. And it's also a system, I think, that is, yes, is there's a, a lot of conflict, a lot of debate, but that's what you want. That's the, what the system is supposed to be like. And as I say, it's also a system that doesn't clearly benefit either party, which was the concern of one of those parties for about 30 or 40 years. So in that sense, I would judge it a success. We would be remiss if we did not talk about Mitch McConnell in his later years as Republican Senate leader, his role in shaping the Supreme Court that we have right now. Yeah, you can define it. His rather political and partisan uh, delaying of a vote on uh, an Obama candidate, uh, the current attorney general, led to a strong conservative majority being established uh, on the Supreme Court. Really, you know, the people who didn't like that, they talk about it a lot as being close to traitor status. But, you know, I think McConnell 
in that case, probably ask himself what other people would do, uh, his opponents would do in the same situation, and he acted accordingly. I don't, I don't know that for a certain fact. But there is this interesting question, which is, has he, you know, Mitch McConnell is a sense Mr. Republican because he was concerned about parties, the party and its, its uh, the consequences of policies for that party and the quality of its candidates and so on. But in this, doing this with the Supreme Court, uh, one of the big effects of that is that the court overruled Roe versus Wade. Now, we're in the early stages of that politically, but one has to wonder, actually, whether that will serve the Republican cause. It's certainly what Republicans wanted to do, and they did it, and they followed the normal procedures over a 30- or 40-year period and did it. It may well turn out to be a political disaster. We don't know yet, but it's possible. The other thing is is the question of of campaign finance itself, right? The um, Democrat adaptations and ability to use the internet, and along with you know, to be frank, Donald Trump's ability to bring Democrats to give money, to give small donations, all of that uh, you have to say is not necessarily in Republican Party's advantage. So he ended up. I think doing things that he was very much a consequentialist and looked to those things, and any leader is going to be, frankly. But we, everybody in that situation is also going to have the situation where they may bring about perverse ends. That's just the part of human life and being a leader in politics. Uh, something is entailed that way, and McConnell himself must live with it. John Samples is author of The Fallacy of Campaign Finance Reform, among other books, and is a vice president at the Cato Institute. We spoke earlier today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.